From the farms, from the cities, from every land Came the Abe Lincoln Brigade With a dream in their hearts and a gun in their hands The Abraham Lincoln Brigade No passeran, no passeran So sang the Abe Lincoln Brigade Across the years and the oceans We still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade and in these times, sharing the lessons of the anti-fascist legacy of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade has a sense of urgency. Art Shields covered it all as a reporter for the Daily Worker on the front lines in Spain, as a labor journalist, and as an organizer himself. He covered many key events for the left, including the defense of Sacco and Vanzetti, the Battle of Blair Mountain, the organizing drives in Harlan County, the sit-down strike in Flint, Michigan, and many more. Art believed that strong unions were one of the best defenses against fascism and covered the defense of those trade union leaders under attack during McCarthyism. Today's show is an excerpt from a talk last month presented by the Abraham Lincoln Brigade archives. You'll find the whole talk on their website, alba-valb.org. And on labor history in two. The year was 1926. And on this day, labor leader Benjamin Gold began what became a general strike of all furriers in New York City. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. All the teachers, the artists, the workers who died, oh, the Abe Lincoln Brigade. Their stories still thrill me. We work side by side with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. I want to welcome everyone on the behalf of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archives. I'm Richard Bermack, your host. ALBA's mission is to preserve the legacy of the volunteers who fought to defend Spanish Republic against a fascist takeover, and after the war, they dedicated their lives to the struggle for social justice. Today, we are pleased to present the program honoring labor journalist Art Shields. Art went to Spain to cover the international brigades for the Daily Worker. He was captured, imprisoned, and executed. Today, we're, we're going back in history of the 1920s and 30s when the labor movement was front page news. Labor had their own news syndicate, the Federated Press, with reporters like Art. That was a time when people proudly identified themselves as workers, engaged in the class struggle. The labor movement was a major part of that struggle, and labor journalists were, ban were the banner carriers. Labor reporters saw the role not just as covering the news, but as political organizers and activists. Many like Art saw fighting for the workers in Spain as part of the same struggle going on in the US, which was the international struggle. And now I'm pleased to introduce Nancy Wallach. She is the daughter of Abraham Lincoln Brigade veteran, Hi Wallach. She is a retired New York City public school teacher with a background in art education and professional development. She has received the New York City School and Culture Award and the Lincoln Center Institute's Creative Teaching Award. She has been named Art Educator of the Year by the New York City Art Teachers Association, United Federation of Teachers, and has received many grants in the areas of education and arts. She has represented ALBA at International Brigade and anti-fascist commemorations in Spain, England, Ireland, and France. She has delivered presentations on Paul Robeson 
and the International Brigade in Belfast and Dublin, where Paul Robeson was very beloved. Thank you, Richard. Uh, today, we're continuing the story of the Lincoln Brigade by putting the spotlight on one of the key figures in the history of the American labor movement and journalism, Art Shields. And in these times, sharing the lessons of the anti-fascist legacy of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade has a sense of urgency. These lessons from the Lincoln's legacy of resisting fascism and its connection to their roots in the trade union movement are nowhere better embodied than in the life and reporting of Art Shields, which is why we're so pleased to share Art's own accounts of those times and the lessons he drew from it in volume two of his autobiography on the battle lines, 1919 to 1939. And the book begins with the Seattle general strike to free Tom Mooney and concludes with Art's coverage of Spain for the daily worker. But the whole of the work, not only his reports from Spain, is aptly titled On the Battle Lines because the early history of struggles for unionization, which Art was a part of, were indeed battles in which workers' demands were often met with violent repression and literal battles took place. I think one of the best illustrations of the relationship between strong unions and anti-fascism comes from this conversation Art had with John L. Lewis, uh, the head of the United Mine Workers, during the drive for industrial organization in the 1930s. Lewis had committed his union to solidarity with organizing drives with other unions. And in this interview, he says, we will build a powerful labor movement that will have tremendous results in the political, social, and moral life of the United States. And Art asks him, what if fascism? And will not the movement towards American fascism be weakened throughout the country when workers everywhere are organized as well as the United Mine Workers are? Uh, most assuredly, answered Lewis, the best guarantee of democracy is a powerful labor movement. And at this point, it seems appropriate to point out that so many of the Lincoln Brigade volunteers came to Spain from the trade union movement that they helped to organize and return to after their service in World War II. Well, the next slide is uh, the grave marker for Art and Esther Shields at Forest Home Cemetery, which is just west of Chicago. And it's in the area surrounding the Haymarket Martyrs Monument. And the inscription, Working Class Journalists, tells us all about their ardent commitment to an identification with the working class and how they understood their role as journalists. Art <clears throat> proudly tells how he worked on the Daily Worker's first issue published in, on January 13th, 1924, and he would remain on the staff, including its successors, the Daily World and People's World, for the rest of his life. And their role of journalists was not, uh, they were very much not false equivalency or both sidism or whataboutism types of journalists. It's appropriate that they should be buried near the Haymarket Martyrs as Art was involved in and used his journalistic and organizing skills in the many struggles for the eight hour day. Art was an assistant strike organizer in the Brotherhood of Metal Workers campaign for the eight hour day in Newark, New Jersey. And he termed this his first official union position. He says, I wrote a number of strike leaflets 
I replied to a speech by the publisher of the New York Ledger that said that strikers would not know what to do with their leisure if they toiled only eight hours a day. And I polled many workers in preparing my reply to this time-worn nonsense. None had any doubt about what they would do with the spare time they were fighting to win. And, and in the style, which Josie will give you many examples of later, he, he basically, uh, he, he polls the workers and he gives their responses to them and from them, uh, everything from just resting from the punishing speed up. And he also wrote about how William Z. Foster organized the meatpacking industry and won the eight hour day for 200,000 men and women. And I'd like to focus now on arts reporting on the Battle of Blair Mountain, because it's often referred to as ground zero for the labor movement and the right to unionize in the 20th century. And battles were still going on around it as the coal miners, miners, owners rather, the owners seek to use it for tracking, fracking, while workers are using this commemorative site as a gathering place to push for 21st century demands. Well, are entitled, as you can see in the slide, this chapter, War Correspondent. However, this assignment is not on the battlefields of Spain, which he'd be brought from in 1939. It's in West Virginia, 1921. And War Correspondent begins with these words. 5,000 Union miners were shooting it out with 5,000 gun thugs and state police on Blair Mountain in Logan County. Art calls it the biggest armed struggle in U.S. labor history. And this illustration, and they're done by uh, Peggy Lifshitz in the book, um, he's, he uh, shows the murder of Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers. And uh, you may have seen Sid Hatfield's story told on the screen in the film Nate One, which is made by honorary the board member John Sayles. Art calls this murder the spark that would start an explosion, the dramatic event that fixed workers' eyes on the crisis before the entire labor movement of West Virginia. And he says that spark flashed when Sid Hatfield was shot dead by Baldwin Fultz assassins on the courthouse steps. Uh, Hatfield and, and Chambers, who was also killed, were falsely accused of blowing up a mine tipple in McDowell County. And they were promised protection by Bill Hatfield, the sheriff of McDowell County, a distant kinsman, if they came to Welch to answer the indictments. But blood ties meant nothing to Bill Hatfield. He was a U.S. Steel Corporation man through and through, and a hail of bullets met them as they reached the second round, the courthouse steps. And Art explains that this history of violence against the miners and their families, combined with the low wages and the unsafe work conditions, and what amounted to indentured servitude with a lifetime of debt were all underlying contributions to the Blair Mountain uprising. Well, Art was not released to report on this until in his words, the big battle began. And I was then in the midst of a war on the home front. And Art's reporting here, you'll see, has a lot in common with the way he would cover other labor conflicts and the war in Spain. He would put himself at great personal risks in order to get the truth out about the people's side, believing that injustice went unremedied because not enough people knew about it. And almost two decades before Martha Gelhorn would report on the Spanish anti-fascist war, he saw that his job, as she saw hers, was to be the eyes for his reader's conscience. Um, after earning the trust of the miners, Art's given a guide, Ed, a cabin creek youth, and Art says, my only complaint was Ed wouldn't let me see all the action I wanted to see. Well, 
Bill told me you mustn't get hurt because you're a friend. Three reporters are wounded already. But my complaint was short-lived. Ed couldn't keep out of the action himself. And I learned the strategy of both sides. Well, another feature of this uh, conflict that future generations can draw lessons from is the diversity of what are termed the workers' army. He notes that a black man was one of the first men to die in this battle for miners' freedom. And he says he was reminded of Crispus Attucks, the first black man to give his life for American independence in the Boston Massacre. Now, this working class army made significant history in the unity of black, white, and multi-ethnic uh, members at the Battle of Blair Mountain, African-American workers, who in that time were frequently barred from union membership, were united with Hungarians, Italian, Polish, and Slavic workers in the, these 10 camps, which you see, which were established because these workers had been evicted from their company homes for union activity. The mine owners tried to keep them apart in order to prevent organization and unionization, but it didn't work in Blair Mountain. And a very recent article in the Smithsonian Magazine noted that one of the many bits of Blair Mountain history that continues to stick out is the diversity of the miners' army in 1921. Hart uncovered plans for 13 of President Harding's U.S. Army planes waiting at Charleston Airfield, and they're loaded with gas and fragmentation bombs for use against the miners. He says, the Battle of Blair Mountain ended without army bombings. They didn't have uh, bombings uh, less uh, lethal, uh, although a couple of them were lethal, uh, from the um, local authorities. But it ended without the U.S. Army bombings when 2,000 U.S. infantrymen arrived on Blair Mountain in full battle gear. Mother Jones called this U.S. Army the Coal Baron's Reserve Army of Gunmen. And here next you'll see a slide of federal troops arriving in West Virginia to put an end to the miners' protest and three miners with a federal um, soldier preparing to surrender their weapons. Art drew these lessons from the Battle of Blair Mountain. He said the strike wasn't won. All Union contracts in West Virginia mines were wiped out. Nevertheless, the question arises, was the battle worthwhile? And he says, very definitely. It left an example of solidarity and heroism that has inspired West Virginia miners ever since. The memory of Blair Mountain stimulated the miners in the big union upsurge in the 1930s, what they used different tactics. And men proudly said that their fathers, grandfathers or uncles had been in the battle when I reported the historic black lung strike victory in 1969. Well, the Mine Wars Museum marked that unity in the first Blair Centennial celebration in 2021. They concurred with Art's analysis. The Blair Centennial serves as a reminder, says the museum's director, Kenzie Mew, that solidarity is the only way forward. New labor and justice conflicts are emerging in West Virginia and throughout the nation. Blair Mountain teaches us we have to stand together if we're going to win. The miners took great risks and banded together collectively, overcoming barriers of race and ethnicity to shine a light on these dramatic examples of exploitation. And the lesson best learned from Blair Mountain is simple resilience. Today, union workers, their families, and activists of all stripes Look back on Blair Mountain for inspiration about how to fight today's battles and for lessons on how to persevere. Perseverance 
resilience, and unity. The story of the Lincoln Brigade has similar lessons for us. So from Art's reporting as a war correspondent, beginning of the book, I'd like to jump to his work as a war correspondent in Spain, which concludes the book. The very last words Art writes in the book are, the resistance to fascism by the Spanish people and the international volunteers left a glorious tradition of heroism and international brotherhood. And this tradition has inspired lovers of liberty ever since, and I'm proud I was accepted into the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. And the plaque, um, thank you, reads to Art Shields, honorary member of Balb, courageous war correspondent in Spain, valiant anti-fascist, 45th anniversary of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, April 18th, 1982. And I had the great privilege of sitting alongside Art and Esther, uh, as they joined my parents' table at many Lincoln Brigade reunions. And now that I've read his books, there, there's so much I would have liked to have asked them both. Um, I would have liked to have heard about the third and unfortunately uh, unrealized book he was planning. He intended to write about his encounters with and interviews with the cultural artists who supported the Lincoln Brigade, people like Paul Robeson and Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger. Art arrived in Madrid on Sunday, March 5th, 1939, after he had reported on the conditions in the French internment camps, which were already flooded with Spanish Republican refugees and International Brigade soldiers who couldn't return home to their fascist-occupied uh, lands. He also reported on seeing hundreds of Soviet tanks and planes stockpiled at the border, which French Premier Delivier refused to allow over the border into Spain. And Art writes that had these arms been allowed to reach Spain, even at this late point, they could have made a big difference in turning the tide of the war in favor of the Republic. Art replaced Joe North as the Daily Worker correspondent during this, these very last days of the war. And the international brigades had already been dispersed in Madrid, the Republican government of Juan Negrin and the Loyalist Army was fighting off not only the advancing army of, of Franco's of forces from his coup, but another coup within, led by Colonel Casado, who headed the Republic's army in Madrid. And Art was the only U.S. journalist in Madrid during the Casado coup, and his reporting remains an important eyewitness account of it, which I'd like to share with you. Art uh, relates this conversation he had with Emilio Delgado, who was the uh, editor of the Communist Party National Journal, Mundo Obrero. And uh, Delgado said, you've come at a dangerous time. We're expecting an armed uprising of the enemy's fifth column. We're expecting an armed uprising. Uh, and General Mola, one of Franco's commanders, once said that four fascist columns were marching on Madrid. And when they reached Madrid, they'd be met by a fascist fifth column inside the city. Art reported uh, the Federation of Anarchists of Iberia newsletter contained the fifth column manifesto, uh, their declaration. The signatures were headed by that of Colonel Casado, followed by Julian Bestiero, the right-wing social democrat leader, Miguel Sensender, a left uh, Republican party spokesman, uh, the, the Trotskyite spokesman Prados, Carrillo and Garcia gave the manifesto their blessing. And the anarchists were Colonel Mera, Eduardo Val, and Gonzalez Marin. And Art says they did not call themselves the fifth column. They called themselves the National Council of Defense, but that was a misnomer because they were not defending Madrid. 
planned to give it away, and they promised a revolutionary peace with Franco after crushing the communists, and this was a lie. They were planning to surrender Madrid to Franco without firing a shot at the butcher who had already executed 200,000 Spanish uh, civilians. Art would be captured uh, by a dozen of Colonel Nero's anarchists, and he describes some of them as wearing FAI emblems and all as carrying submachine guns. And he had the miraculous quick thinking and determination to escape from this cell for the condemned. Uh, and he avoided his execution. So we're very happy he was not executed. He was still with us until 1988, I believe. He led his captors to the U.S. Embassy, and he sprinted a few feet ahead of them in spite of hunger, exhaustion, and their best efforts to grab them back. The embassy custodian, who was an ardent Basque anti-fascist, told Art that Casado had executed 2,000 communists and alleged communists that past week, and he sure Art would have been among them had he not escaped. Art would even be in further danger as he tried to get home, uh, which he decided to do in order to get his stories uh, out to work for the freedom of others who'd been captured, and he risked enemy attacks and recapture on the seas. Well, Art concludes this account of his escape, and I'm going to conclude uh, my part now uh, with the reminder, the very sober reminder that, quote, World War II was only three months away, and it must not be forgotten that the war might have been prevented if the United States had allowed the Spanish Republic to buy American arms. President Franklin Roosevelt once confessed that his Spanish policy was my biggest mistake and few mistakes have been followed by so much bloodletting. No passeran, no passeran, so sang the Abe Lincoln Brigade. Across the years and the oceans, we still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. Did you work a 40-hour work week this week? If you did, this is an important day for you. On this day in labor history, the year was 1926. And on this day, labor leader Benjamin Gold began what became a general strike of all furriers in New York City. Benjamin Gold was born in Russia and immigrated with his family to the United States when he was 12 years old. He worked at several jobs before entering work in the fur industry. He became active in the Furrier Union at only 14 years old. In 1926, Gold helped lead some 12,000 workers, including Jewish, Greek, and African-American furriers, on strike. One of their core demands was a 40-hour work week. Despite numerous acts of police brutality against the workers, constant red baiting, and dwindling strike funds, the workers held strong. Ben Gold helped raise money for the strikers, visiting other union halls throughout the city to sell 40-hour Liberty Bonds. He helped get the New York State Federation of Labor and other unions in the city to support the cause. He argued that the 40-hour work week was important for all workers in New York and across the nation. With this support, Gold organized a rally at Madison Square Garden. The labor supporters filled the garden, making it the largest labor meeting in New York up to that time. After 17 long weeks, the Furriers were successful, winning their first contract that recognized a 40-hour, five-day work week. They also won a 25% pay increase, union inspection of shops, an employer contribution to an unemployment insurance fund, a paid day off, and equal assignments of work without favoritism. These brave workers helped to set the standard 
for the work week of today. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. Cries from the cities, shouts from the hills, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. The fire in the hearts that is warming us still, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. And that's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better if you like what you hear. Sure hope you do. Like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archives. You'll find a video on the whole talk on Art Shields on their website, alba-valb.org, or you can just click on the link in the show notes. Our music today was the Abraham Lincoln Brigade by John McCutcheon. Labor History Today is produced by the Labor Heritage Foundation and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. You can keep up with all the latest labor arts news. Subscribe to the Labor Heritage Foundation's weekly newsletter, laborheritage.org. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlick. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history and see you next time. So raise glasses and voices, give them a toast. Oh, the Abe Lincoln Brigade. Those who die best are the ones who live most, like the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. No passer on, no passer on, so sang the Abe Lincoln Brigade. Across the years and the oceans, we still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. No passer on, no passer on, so sang the Abe Lincoln Brigade. Across the years and the oceans, we still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade.